cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, April 10th, 2012. Too much to talk about, not enough program time. Wow. I'm thinking I may not have a light edition this week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Think of it this way. Um, we ask questions, and that's an important thing to do. It's an important thing for us to be doing, and it's an important thing for you to be doing. Um, you know you're dealing with something off. You're dealing with something where there's a problem when you can't ask questions. Now, there are good questions, and there are bad questions. There are questions that are misguided. There's loaded questions. So, I mean, sometimes asking a question isn't necessarily an innocent endeavor. In fact, you know, sometimes asking a question, um, it makes it possible for you to make statements rather than questions. In fact, my wife, got to tell you this, I, you know, Mrs. Roseboro is a is very gifted. She's one of the few people that I know that is able to give me instruction. Um, uh, she doesn't command me. I, that, that kind of, that's not really the way it works, but she is the only person who can, well, make a statement of what she in, would prefer that I do and frame it in the form of a question. And those kind of questions go something like this. You were going to mow the lawn today, weren't you? <laughs> Funny that you would ask that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I need to mow the lawn. Yeah. See that, that, see, that's the idea. But, um, but that's not the type of questions I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is the ability to ask a question, to ask and ascertain as to whether or not that thing that person is saying, specifically in the context here of church or church polity or methodology or ecclesiology, is really what God's Word says or teaches. Is it the truth and or not? Now, um, in the past ideologues and people who hold to ideologies 
are flat out threatened by um, questions. In fact, you many times you can tell, not 100% of the time, many times you can tell you're dealing with an ideology when the when well you're not allowed to ask questions you are to do what you are told to submit to the collective will if you would and not ask questions you know there's something really wrong in a situation like that something really wrong it doesn't it doesn't matter if what the context is something has gone wrong because the truth isn't afraid of questions in fact the truth welcomes questions the truth welcomes clarity and so I think that may be one of the reasons why God the Holy Spirit revealed that the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. And when you read that passage, what you discover is, is that you know Paul, when he went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel there, proclaimed Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And he was met with, well, hostility to the point of, it really getting ugly and out of hand. People were threatened. They were upset. They wanted to shut him up. They needed to shut him down, right? And so Paul goes to Berea, and it says that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. For when they heard the word of God, that you know they well they tech, they took the message that the apostle Paul preached, and they tested it against the word of God. And Paul didn't behave like an ideologue. He didn't sit there and say, oh, I'm the Apostle Paul. How dare you tell me that you're going to check to see what I've told you is the truth? I'm the Apostle Paul. You need to submit to my authority. You need to obey me. Not at all. No, they the Bereans are held up as having a more noble character precisely because they asked questions. So here's a question I have for you. Are you allowed to ask questions in your church? D does your pastor allow you to uh, ask good, challenging, biblical questions to clarify as to whether or not what he's teaching or doing or how he's leading is biblical or in accord with God's word? Or is it physically impossible for you to get FaceTime with your pastor? Is it an absolute impossibility for somebody, well, a lowly peon like you, to, you know, call him up on the phone, ask him a question, share your concerns? Because if that's the case, um, there may be something seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. Pastors are not called to lead Pastors are called to serve. The authority that they've been given is an authority to serve. And you think back to uh, what Jesus did on the night when he was betrayed, when he demonstrated what this authority looks like when he washed the feet of the apostles, right? Would your pastor um, wash the feet of anybody in your congregation? Does he serve them in that way? Or does he drive them? Does he lead them? Does he crack the whip and herd them? You, you, you see the difference? There's a big difference. And you, the, your ability to ask questions, honest questions, is an indicator as to whether or not your pastor truly is a pastor or if he is an ideologue. 
And, and when you think about ideologues and past human history and how that has gone for folks, think it through. History is full of ideologues. And over and again, we have found a trail of dead bodies and destruction in the wake of ideologues because they won't allow themselves to be questioned. And see, ultimately, isn't that what happens? Ideologues set themselves up. Well, it's kind of like pharaohs or god kings to challenge them or to ask them tough questions is to, well, challenge God himself. You got to be careful. We don't have god kings in Christianity. There's no office of god king. Well, there is. But no none of us can hold that position. It's Christ himself. If you think about it, the person who exalts himself as a god king within God's church denies the ascension, denies that Jesus Christ currently rules and reigns sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Anyway, just some thoughts on my mind at the moment here. Um, I want to get them off my chest because I have found over and again that questions are very threatening for people who um, are uh, not interested in truth, but interested in wielding power and authority over people, the power and authority that is not granted to them in Scripture. So again, I just ask the question, can you ask your pastor questions without being thrown out, without having a restraining order filed against you, without being threatened with arrest for trespassing? Can you ask questions? It's a good question to ask. Anyway, just something to consider. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to continue mar in hour number two. We're going to continue marching through our week of good sermons. Uh, we're going to be listening to good Easter sermons for this week in preparation for next week, where we will be, um, well, uh, experiencing the complete and utter train wreck that is um, our annual Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I'm already getting emails, submissions, uh, people uh, nominating pastors in their sermons for this year to be considered in this year's contest. And all I got to say is, <laughs> whoa, that's all I got to say. So uh, let's. yesterday we did not get an opportunity to do our Patricia King update, and nor did we talk about Tebow. So today I just want to let you know, in the first hour we've got we've – got, um, We've got Patricia King and uh, Tebow that we're going to be talking about. I got an Ed Young news story. I got a Rick Warren uh, story that's hit today. Uh, well, maybe not today, or maybe a couple of days ago. But uh, Rick Warren um, was asked the question whether or not, you know, because now that Mitt Romney, it looks like Mitt Romney is going to win the nomination for the Republican Party here in the United States. Uh, for, uh, you know, he's running for president. And he's, well, a Mormon. And so Rick Warren was asked the question as to whether or not Mormonism is Christian or, you know, are Mormons Christian. And he gave a very political answer. In fact, I almost would, I listened to it a couple of times and I, I'm not thoroughly convinced he answered the question. But uh, I, I'm going to put this out there for you to take a listen to. I got some email I want to talk about here. And then uh, we got a good Easter sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in hour number two today. Lots of things on my mind. Um, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know today has been a little bit of a difficult time to focus for the very reason that uh, my brother 
Uh, he is currently uh, under the knife and uh, having another brain tumor removed, so he's having a second craniotomy. And uh, he uh, flew all the way out to City of Hope in Duarte, California, uh, for that procedure. And uh, I'm waiting to hear back from my mother as to uh, how the surgery went and whether the uh, doctors give a thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways as to uh, how things went. So, um, And then we've got the uh, question of uh, what will be the impact upon him and uh, what 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 will a full recovery look like for uh, my brother um, after the surgery? There's a lot of things that are kind of up, up in the air. I can't be there, and so I, I find that working kind of keeps me uh, from obsessing about that particular uh, news item in my family. So uh, today's a normal work day if, uh, for me, as I uh, you know try to keep myself moving forward and making progress uh, at work while my brother is uh, down for the count at the moment. So if you can keep my brother Mark in your prayers, I would truly appreciate it, and so would he. All right, so uh, let's dive into the program proper. I've got a couple of email uh, stories that I want to get to. Well, not stories, but email correspondence that I received. Two of these or three of these? We'll start off with our email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes regarding um, Harriet Blevins. <laughs> the, uh, by the way, the subject of the uh, email reads, Using a sword correctly. Okay. Uh, uh, um, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, uh, listening to Harriet Blevins talk about swords and the like reminded me, interestingly enough, of an illustration I once used in a children's talk. I have a small collection of antique weaponry myself. Now, I can I can picture this. And I was using a 19th century cavalry uh, saber to illustrate the point of the Bible as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the course of my address, I said, much as Mrs. Blevins did, that it was no good my trying to fight a trained swordsman with the weapon, because... I have not trained with it. Herein, I pointed out, is a lesson, unless you have trained with the Bible, unless you are familiar with it, unless you will not be capable to use it, and you can even hurt yourself with it. Now, that is where Mrs. Blevins and many other so-called preachers are. They have not trained with the Bible. They are not familiar enough with it to wield it effectively, or indeed to wield it at all. They are therefore disqualified from combat. Now, I have a second sword in my collection. Initially, it looks to be an Indian weapon, but once drawn, it's obvious that the blade is from a British weapon. The Indian warrior who owned it has made the weapon, initially unfamiliar to him, his own. Which thing is a parable in this way? We must make the Bible our own, not by adapting it as the Indian warrior did, but by learning its use as any soldier must learn the use of his blade. To return to the Indian warrior analogy, obviously I'm referring to the Indian uh, subcontinent, and that would be India. 
Indian warriors would swear oaths by their swords. The warrior's sword was practically an extension of his body. It was that which protected his life and was venerated. If a pagan warrior did that with a carnal weapon, how much more should the Christian soldier respect and know that spiritual weapon, the Bible? <laughs> yeah, that's that's just a great analogy and a great metaphor. Thank you, Pastor Charmley, for that insight. And always, your contributions here are very welcome and uh, much appreciated. All right, next email comes from a gal by the name of Kathy from Sacramento, and she says, Hi, Chris, just a quick email regarding the Spiritual Life Center holding the Easter service at a mosque. I live in Sacramento, so I'm familiar with the story and with the Spiritual Life Center. By the way, you know, that's it does help to, you know, if you're familiar with the region and you're familiar with the geography and the folks in your local community. So Kathy seems to know a little bit more than I do. Perfectly willing to, well, um, grant her the floor here so that she can speak of her local knowledge here. She, so she says this, the Spiritual Life Center is definitely not in big capital letters, N-O-T, not a Christian church. The head on all the pages of their website say, Spiritual Life Center, One God, Many Paths, and displays symbols of numerous world religions. And so then she sends me the link, and she says, it's too depressing to delve very deeply into the website, but clearly they do not worship the one true God they truly, truly need our prayers. And so I clicked on the link. And by the way, yes, she's right. Uh, they definitely do need our prayers. But uh, if you would like to see the website for the Spiritual Life Center there in Sacramento, you can find it, by the way, at www.slcworld.org. That's slcworld.org. And when you go there, at uh, the top of their webpage of their homepage, looks like that coexist um, bumper sticker, but it has all of these different symbols from all these different religions, and it says, one God, many paths. One God, many paths. So it seems that the folks out there in uh, at uh, KCRA in uh, Sacramento have done us all a disservice by basically portraying the folks at the Spiritual Life Center as, well, a Christian church holding their Easter services at a um, at a mosque. It turns out that's like far from the case. It's they would have no problem while worshiping at a mosque because they believe that there's many paths to the one God. And so Allah would be just another expression of apparently worshiping the uh, one God. Hang on a second here. Yep, just got a text message from my mother and she says that my brother is out of the operating room and is now in ICU, and he's doing okay. So this is positive news regarding my brother, and I'm very thankful to hear that. One more quick email from a, a gal by the name of Becky, and she wrote on my Facebook wall. Uh, Becky wrote, she says, As I listen to your episode on Easter at a mosque and two religions coming together, I remembered the Lion King, where Scar says, Yet, out of the ashes of this tragedy, we shall rise to greet the dawning of a new era in which lion and hyena come together in a great and glorious future. 
um, and then she's got the mwahahaha. <clears throat> yeah, it is frightening. It's absolutely frightening. Whether it, at this point, it's pretty clear uh, based on the email that I got in their website that uh, Spiritual Life Center is, doesn't equal a Christian denomination at all or a Christian church. And uh, what, what we're seeing here, though, over and again played out in the media and in other places is this push, this push, this push that somehow Islam and Christianity uh, worship the same God. And um, nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm reminded of the story, um, not of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, but I'm reminded of the story that's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you would uh, permit me to uh, maybe do a little bit of uh, Bible teaching here, I think that this is uh, instructive. Uh, it's instructive because the Bible doesn't condemn Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, for their intolerance of a diverse religion. Uh, Let me explain it this way. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Daniel chapter 3, and I'll convey the story to you this way. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered uh, for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the uh, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, the Chaldeans came forward, maliciously accused the Jews, They declared, O King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You, O King, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, well, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, here's the deal. This would be a perfect place. If the Bible really, really taught this coexist idea, that there, that there's many paths to the one God, this would be the place for this to come out, don't you think? I mean, don't, I mean, if King Nebuchadnezzar was worshiping the one true God by proxy, via this golden image, we would expect that what the Bible would teach here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, they were being pernicious, stubborn, and divisive. 
Yeah, they were being divisive by dividing the people up and not joining with the community to worship this image that um, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And you would expect that if they had, they were being divisive and what they were doing was contrary to the will of God. I mean, after all, aren't there many paths to the one God? Then, well, then God would have rebuked them, right? They would, they should have perished as an example to us in the fiery furnace of those who are out of the step, out of the will of God. Well, let's see what the story, where the story goes. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So, again, if there, if this would be the perfect place for these, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be shown to be the divisive, stubborn dividers of unity that they are, right? If, if that's what God's all about, then they should toast and roast in this uh, fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Furnace. Now, here's the deal. If the one true God is really all about coexisting and really believes that, you know, all paths really lead to him, then the, what should come next is this, basically a statement that says, and thus perished Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to demonstrate what happens to those who cause disunity, right? But here's what happens. Let me back this up. Verse 21. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A little collateral damage here. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Oh, true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I remember years ago when my youngest daughter was only five and we were reading the story. I read the story at the dinner table after dinner. She hung on every word. She hung on every word of the story. And when the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the fire, she gasped. And you can see the terror on her face. Oh, no. What, what's going to happen to them? And then when I read this sentence, but I see four men, and the fourth is like the son of the gods. At the dinner table, my youngest daughter, who was, couldn't be more than four or five at the time, jumped up and screamed with excitement. Jesus came to save them. And you know what? She was right. Jesus came to save them. Jesus saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they refused to coexist. They refused to worship any other god except for the one true God. And they didn't believe something as silly as this idea that all paths lead to God. They don't. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And few find it, Jesus said. But here it's clear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found that narrow path. And the one true God rescued them. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except for their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Coexist? All paths lead to God? Hardly. The scripture knows nothing of such nonsense. Those are the ravings of lunatics and madmen who are deceived by the devil himself and deceiving other people. Pray that God opens their eyes and grants them repentance of their idolatry. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. 
Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your god, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. (laughs) Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. (laughs) Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract them while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Bum, 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 bum. 
back. Warning, anybody, doesn't matter if they're a popular preacher, teacher, book author, or whatever, anybody who says that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, they are not telling the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our friend, two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 mm-hmm. all right time for a patricia king update All right. Do you know what a restorer, restorer, it's a restorer. That's just a (laughs) difficult word. The the name of this video posted by Patricia King a few days ago is entitled Restorers Arise. Are you you a restorer? Anyway, maybe she'll do a better job of it than I have here. But uh, apparently Patricia has got another word from the Lord here. Listen in. What? an era we are living in. This is a time when God is restoring things so powerfully. You know, um... Uh, what's he restoring? Um, <laughs> she just got her hair done. Um, is that a faux hawk? Yeah, I can't tell. The Bible says that biblical justice is about catching a thief in the act. And when you do, you put a demand that he has to restore sevenfold what he took, and you plunder his whole house. So so biblical justice is I get to catch a thief in the act, and then I get to plunder his house, and he has to pay me sevenfold back what he stole. Okay. So in this year, we're going to see things restored, things that have been taken, things that have been stolen by the enemy, identity theft, and... Um, uh, you notice all the abstractions here. Identity theft. Things stolen by the enemy. Are we talking about physical things stolen or not here? Are we talking about real thieves? or What are you talking about? And uh, provisional theft and all kinds of things like that. Dignity that's been stolen. We're going to get it all back. We're going to plunder the enemy's camp. Really? <laughs> okay. But the Lord is calling for restorers amongst us to arise. To So if you're a restorer, then you need to arise right now, apparently, because God's calling you to arise right now. Restorers, arise! Minister to individuals, to cities, and to whole nations, and to bring about the redemptive gifts that God has placed in every region so that we can see the fullness of those things uh, what's a redemptive gift, and how do we find them in different regions? Brought into the place where they'll flourish. And Isaiah 58's been on my heart, and it talks about a fast um, that God speaks of. We're not talking about a fast of, 
you know, food and suffering and that. We're talking about a fast that God has chosen to loosen the bonds of wickedness and to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free. Yeah, I hope you let the people that you're oppressing with this false doctrine go free. And to break every yoke. That's what we get to do as Christians. We get to go and loosen all the bonds of wickedness that are out there, including annihilate modern-day slavery. I tell you, it's so exciting. Even through social media and through uh, activists within the body of Christ, we are seeing headway made where I believe in our lifetime we are going to see the abolition of modern-day slavery, of sex trafficking, of, of uh, heavy uh, slave labor, of children, the exploitation of children why not why not in this hour why not us why not now it is going to be an amazing testimony to the oh boy you know here's the deal uh, abolition of the modern slave trade abolition of sex trafficking human trafficking these are very important projects uh that in, in our time and hearing patricia king talk about this just cheapens the whole thing glory of god it is not too big for him in fact this is the fast that we're called to a fast where we can loosen those bonds of wickedness undo the bands of the yoke let the oppressed go free and break every yoke is it not to divide your bread with the hungry to bring homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh it says then your light will break out like the dawn your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the lord will be your rear guard then you will call and the lord will answer you will cry and he will say here i am if you remove the yoke from your midst the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness and i'd like to just address that for a moment you know a lot of times we can talk about all the problems that are out there in the world but hey come on off it we've got to just do something about it let's not point our finger at everybody and say oh it's this one or it's the president or it's the prime minister or it's the queen whatever you know no we don't have to accuse anyone oh man I just, you know, I just wonder, is it possible for her to even have a single coherent lucid thought? I mean, I feel like I'm listening to the ravings of a man person, a lunatic. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, and they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure." And you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his, down his head like a reed and so spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Notice that the context here points us to the fact that Israel, they were fasting all right, but they were fasting in wickedness. We continue. 
Is not this fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? What are we talking about here? The the bonds of wickedness, sin in our own lives. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, doing good works in keeping with repentance and faith? That's what this is. Then shall your light break forth in the light and dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call to the Lord, and I will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, and pointing a finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the good works that proceed from it are what's being discussed here in Isaiah 58. I have no idea what she's talking about. We can just go and tear down wickedness because we got the power to do it. We can bring light into the darkness. We can bring bring um, order into chaos. We've got the power to do it. Oh, no. If we will remove from our, our midst... The pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, wickedness. And if we will just give ourselves to the needs, give ourselves to the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then our light will arise in darkness. Did you miss the whole point about confessing your sins? That kind of, yeah. You know, even for the United States of America, there's so often the church will condemn the leaders and, you know, point the finger at the politicians and that. That's not what this is talking about. Come on, let's lay that down and said, give ourselves to bring the light into the darkness. Give ourselves to the afflicted. Give ourselves to the problems as a solution. Then we will see light arise in the darkness. It says your gloom will become like the midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places, give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of waters who do not fail. Where's that email from Pastor Charlie? I think I might want to reread this. This is an example of somebody who has no skill whatsoever in wielding the sword of the spirit, and she hurts herself. She hurts herself and other people every single time she picks it up. Good night. Okay, moving Purpose. along. It keeps you going strong, like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose. So what's mine? Oh look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. It's, it's a sign. I don't know how I know, but I. Yeah, there we go. That's our update music for Rick Warren. Rick Warren was recently on ABC News 
And uh, and he was asked about a bunch of different things, but we're going to take a look at the uh, the one that pertains to well Mormonism. It seems like this is a you know a fairly standard question that the media asks prominent so-called Christian leaders uh, when it comes to um, you know their stand on Mitt Romney and Mormonism. Of course, we all know what happens when Joel Osteen's asks this question. Joel Osteen's answer is well. Mitt Romney believes in Jesus and, and, you know, and so he's a good Christian brother, you know, same as Glenn Beck and, you know, Mormons like that. So, uh, you know, well, Rick Warren was asked the same question. What I found interesting about the answer is, is that although I think it's fair to say that he somehow says that it's not Christian, the way he answers the question is a little bit political, somewhat indirect. Um, a direct answer would be more helpful, but, here, I'll, I'll let you hear for yourself. Here's uh, uh, Rick Warren on ABC News. Mitt Romney will almost certainly be the Republican nominee. And if that happens, which it looks like it will, he'll be the first member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be the nominee. A lot of evangelicals have been talking about whether or not Mormons are Christians. Mm -hmm. Are Mormons Christians? Well, the, the, the key sticking point for evangelicals. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, serious. Let's, let, let, let me, like, folks, if you are ever asked by anybody in the media, you know, let, let me do a little bit of media coaching for you, okay? Here, here, so let me, I'll, I'll play the role of the media, and as, I'll also play the role of you. So if you're ever interviewed, the, 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 the guy interviewing will, say, will ask, so uh, let me ask you, are Mormons Christians? Okay, there it is. It's right there. Okay, the ant. So here's this is free media coaching from somebody who you know is is in the media. Okay, so there's the question: Are Mormons Christians? All you got to do is say no. Da da. That's it. It's I, it. In fact, you know, I won't even charge you for that. I mean, that's just some free media coaching right there. Are Mormons Christians? No, they are not. And let me tell you why. If you would like to elaborate, you can talk about the fact that, well, Mormons believe in salvation by works. They believe that salvation is about uh, becoming a god. They believe in many gods, the thing called the law of eternal progression. As man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. It doesn't get any simpler than that, and that's just flat-out blasphemy. The scriptures know nothing. In fact, there's clear passages of scripture that that absolutely rule against this. Okay, There's no god but one. Okay? Jesus Christ is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. Mormonism is a cult based upon the delusions and false visions, or you can even say demonic visions if you want to, of uh, Joseph Smith. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. In fact, it has, it's as Christian as, well, Islam. You can make, these are fine answers. So that free media coaching there. If you're ever asked by the media, are Mormons Christians? The answer is no. It's that simple. So, let me back this up. Uh, you know, he's being asked the question, are Mormons Christians? Watch how he answers the question. I've been talking about whether or not Mormons are Christians. Mm -hmm. Are Mormons Christians? Well, the, the, the key sticking point for evangelicals, and actually for many, is the issue of the Trinity. That's the historic doctrine of the church, that God is three in one. Not three gods, one God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mormonism denies that. That's a sticking point for a lot of Catholic Christians. What can you define the term sticking point? I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I, okay, yeah, it's true. Mormons do not properly understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Their idea of the doctrine of the Trinity is way different than what's revealed in Scripture. It, do, do I go to my Mormon neighbors and say, hey, listen, you know, I'd consider you a Christian, but I have a sticking point. Yeah, it's a, this doctrine of the Trinity thing. So, you know, it, it's a sticking point. What does that mean? Evangelical Christians, Pentecostal Christians, because they don't, they don't believe that. Now, they'll use the same terminology, but they don't believe in the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Neither does T.D. Jakes. And people have tried to make it other issues, but that's really one of the fundamental differences. Okay, one of the fundamental differences. All right, so I, I would say that the, the answer to the question, you could say after listening to it, falls down on the side of, well, it sounds to me like Rick Warren is saying that they're not Christians, but what would have been really helpful would would have been for him to just answer the question no and then explain why you can say well one of the issue, one of the reasons has to do with the doctrine of the trinity it says there's almost a political answer well you know there's for a lot of people there's a sticking point oh well, well, well sticking yeah the historic doctrine of the trinity that's a sticking point yeah you know it didn't stop uh, the guys over at the elephant room too from declaring td jakes to be a a Christian brother, even though he affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity using modalistic terms. I mean, you know, this, I mean, they apparently overcame that sticking point. And, you know, maybe we can overcome the sticking point with uh, uh, with the Mormons, too. Maybe uh, James McDonald should, you know, invite the uh, the current prophet of the Mormon church to Elephant Room uh, 3, and you know, so that we can get past that sticking point. <clears throat> Moving along. From the WFAA website, it's a uh, television station out there in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Headline reads, Grapevine Church Under Fire for Using Animals at Easter Service. Now, man, it seems like uh, Ed Young just can't seem to catch a break. Apparently he's, you know, people are upset because of his private jet. People, you know are upset because he did this experiment on the top of his uh, church. Uh, well, now he's got uh, he for well for um Easter service for the uh the morning, you know, the sunrise service, he brought in, well, a lion and a lamb. And there's video of the lion. The lion looks kind of agitated. He's in one of these cages and he's being cajoled by his owner you know, to do liony kind of things. But uh, here's the story from the WFA affiliate out there in Dallas-Fort Worth. Fort Worth, here we go. The pastor of a North Texas megachurch, no stranger to stunts, is facing new criticism tonight. It's not over a sex service. <laughs> no stranger to stunts. <laughs> Apparently the folks out there at the uh, news uh, <clears throat> at Channel 8 in Dallas-Fort Worth they know something about uh, Ed Young. He's no stranger to stunts. But the use of live animals on Easter. Fellowship Church Pastor Ed Young says it was a creative Bible lesson. Human Humane groups call it something else. Channel 8's Steve Stoller reports tonight from Grapevine. He's been in numerous movies. So now, what you can't see is the video. I mean, the owner here, there's a, there's a lion in a, well, a substantial size cage. Uh, obviously a portable cage, and the lion is, you know, batting at this guy like he wants to get a hold of him, you know? Has the lion handler. Look at him. Stacy Smith of the Humane Society of Flower Mound attended worship service at the Fellowship Church Easter morning after hearing that live animals might be a part of the service. When a lion and lamb were brought out, Smith recorded it with her cell phone. 
And see, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of a lion, do we? Or the handlers of the lion ran around the cage, um, sort of poking at him and taunting him to get him to lunge around. Young's message, the paradox of Jesus as both lion and lamb. But Smith says she came away with a different paradox, mistreatment of animals in a place designed to teach compassion. Thousands and thousands no, of no. church. Well, see, that's her problem. I mean, she thinks that uh, Fellowship Church is a place designed to teach compassion. Yeah, that's probably not in their vision statement. Um, yeah, that was probably not part of the vision that uh, Ed Young claims that he received from God. Um, yeah, no, they're they're all about relevantly, um, basically capitulating to the culture. But you know. are able to convey the same exact message without using live animals. Pastor Young told us the 17-year-old lion lives on a 55-acre ranch in California. We would never do anything to endanger our people. Also, we would never do anything to endanger an animal. We, we love animals. Pastor Young is known for creative sermons. In January, Young and his wife spent 24 hours in a bed on the roof of the church. That's right. He burned his eyes out and sunburned his Botox. Yeah, it's it's not a pretty thing that happened up there at the top of that church, you know. He called it a sex experiment. Lisa Chatlin, who attends services at Fellowship, says she enjoys Pastor Young and his message, but she told us she's disappointed. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> this lady's going to get in trouble because she publicly said something against Pastor Young. She'll probably not be allowed to attend there anymore. I don't feel it's necessary. I think Ed Young has a way of getting his point across without live animals as props, as entertainment. I think it's great to expose our kids, to expose the church to that. And I think before too long, the church has a sort of stifled creativity. Young told us fellowship. Yeah, for far too long, the church has stifled creativity. Yeah, because creativity equals that. Uh-huh. We'll continue using wildlife over the next five weeks for a biblical series about animals called wild. Now, Grapevine police told us they're investigating to see if the church violated any laws by using a live lion. The USDA requires licenses for exotic cat exhibitors. Now, the Humane Society says it wants to work with the church to find a better way to get its message across without using live animals. Live in Frisco, Steve Stoller, Channel 8 News. So uh, here's you know, a valid question. I mean... How how do we understand this story? I mean, is is this just you know kind of the liberal people for the ethical treatment of animals type of folk you know raising a stink, or do they have a valid point? I mean, here's the deal: even if it was brought up by the people for the ethical treatment of animals, and we you know they they tend to have a highly liberal, uh, bizarre agenda, even if it was somebody in that camp that was raising the point, the question still needs to be brought up: is you know, what's going on here? Because it sounds like there's an entire sermon series now being preached, um, taught, um, self-help style. They're at uh, Fellowship uh, in Dallas <laughs> having a hard time because, you know, I don't want to use the word church because I don't really think they're a church. But uh, they're Ed Young, the self-help guru and, you know, the, uh, the sex experimenter, uh, you know, he's got a whole new series that he's teaching on called Wild and uh, apparently the key draw because they got to be relevant you know because you know the church for far too long has been stifling creativity it, the the key draw is going to be that every um every service they're going to have wild animals of one stripe or another there 
I mean, it sounds to me not like he's, you know, that he's actually correctly handling God's word and exegeting a passage. And therefore, in order to really get the point across as to what God's word teaches here, he's got to bring in animals to help make the point. It, it, I mean, this it sounds like, you know, a television show bringing in somebody like Marlon Perkins, you know, with some exotic animal as, you know, part of the the program, part of the, the, the entertainment, part of the draw, you know, you get what I'm saying here? And so, and the point is that also, I think that uh, what he's doing is offending people, even offending people within his own um, facility there. Anyway, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. Okay, moving along. Last story that I want to get to. And uh, one that I wanted to get to yesterday from the ESPN.go.com website. The headline reads, uh, Tim Tebow draws big crowd in Texas. Uh, yeah, Tim Tebow draws big uh, crowd in Texas, in Georgetown, Texas. Uh, the headline, the story reads, Tim Tebow drew a crowd of about 15,000 to an outdoor Easter church service Sunday telling the gathering it's important to be outspoken about faith while admonishing athletes about not being better role models. Okay. <clears throat> By the way, uh, Sunday was Easter Sunday. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, okay, being a better role model, being a better role model. So I did a little bit of uh, poking around and, uh, you know, to, to find out a little bit about this church that uh, would, well, invite Tim Tebow. So Celebration Celebration Church, Georgetown, Texas. I Googled them and pulled them up. And right there on Google, it says, connect with your destiny. Connect with your destiny. So Celebration Church is a multi-site church. They're in Georgetown, Texas, and their slogan is Connect With Your Destiny. Okay, so, you know, they're on the uh, ESPN website. They've reproduced the, um, well, the postcard that was sent out uh, advertising Tim Tebow's appearance there. And um, Celebration Church pastors Joe and Lori... Uh, champion, pastors Joe and Lori Champion. So we got a problem here. Um, wow, that's quite a church. Uh, connect with your destiny, and they have a female pastrix along with the pastor. Multi-site. I mean, it looks like you know, pretty much a multi-site, seeker-driven, purpose-driven type of venue. Um, I don't think this sets a good example. In fact, I think it sets a really bad example for somebody who's such a high-profile Christian to, number one, speak at a church like that. Number two, um, speak at a church with a female pastrix. Number three, to um, basically hijack this, you know, Easter, a uh, time when we talk about Christ and him crucified for our sins, hijack Easter to talk about, well, yourself. And your opinions, right? So let me. So 
So let let me read this again. Text says, Tim Tebow drew a crowd of about 15,000 to an outdoor Easter church service Sunday, telling the gathering it's important to be outspoken about faith. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. While admonishing athletes about not being better role models. All the while, he wasn't exactly being the best role model of Christian and biblical discernment there based upon where he was, who he was with, and what he said on the day that he said it. That doesn't exactly set a good role model in Christianity. Yeah, and I'll stick to that statement uh, until I die. Anyway, quote, in Christianity, it's it's the it's the Pope and Tebow right now. Celebration Church to, uh, Pastor Joe Champion said, we didn't have enough room to handle the Pope. So Tebow, devout Christian, NF, a backup NFL quarterback and cultural phenom, has a flock of admirers uh, drawn as much to his religious leanings as his Heisman Trophy skills. He told them he welcomed the attention of his convictions as well as the Tebowing prayer pose he often strikes on the field because it puts his faith and prayer in the public conversation. It's being talked about, he said. That's exciting. Some at the Easter on the Hill morning service under sunny skies drove more than a hundred miles to hear Tebow speak. The service took on the feeling of a rock concert with more than a hundred school buses shuttling people to the sprawling megachurch campuses from local shopping centers and the nearby college. The service was peppered with lively Christian rock songs, and Tebow hit the large stage to cheers from those who could see him while others toward the back of the crowd watched on massive video screens. Tebow sat for a twenty minute interview with Champion to talk about his faith and the role it plays in his public life. It's okay to be outspoken about your faith, Tebow said. He also took a shot at professional athletes who insist that they are not role models. Yes, you are. You're just not a good one, Tebow said. Yeah, all the while, I don't think Tebow was setting a very good example for Christians. Um, Talking about himself on Easter Sunday, rather than having... Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the grave. You, you get what I'm saying? I'm not being nitpicky here. I, the focus is off like 180 degrees. I'm sorry, but um, if Tebow were to show up to my church on Sunday morning, especially on Easter Sunday, my expectation is is that he would sit and hear the gospel. And, uh, and if, for whatever strange reason, he was invited to speak, um, let's just say that you know he's somehow proved that he's uh, qualified to be ordained. Um, if he were to give the sermon on uh, on Easter Sunday, my expectation is is that he would preach about Christ, not talk about himself. That would be my expectation because that's what we go to church for. It's not celebrity interview time. It's time to hear about Christ and him crucified and raised again on the third day for our sins and for our justification. We've got important business to get to as the gathered body of Christ on any given Sunday morning, and Easter doubly so. And it has nothing to do with uh, sitting, you know, having celebrity athletes come in for an interview to talk about themselves. Sure, if you want to do an interview with Tebow, I mean, there's a, there's a right time and a right place for that. There really is. And, well, um, Sunday morning church service, sermon time, that ain't the time or the place. 
again, I don't have a problem with you know people wanting to come in and hear about Tebow and, and hear about his challenges about you know being Christian athlete and 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 the importance of being bold about your faith. That, that that's a perfectly valid thing to discuss. It's a perfectly valid thing for us to hear from Brother Tebow. Just not at that time and in that place. There's a right time and a right place for everything. That ain't the right time and the right place. That's taking our eyes off of Christ and putting him on to Tebow, which I don't think sets a good example, do you? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We come back, we'll be listening to a fantastic, good Easter sermon preached by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. I'm almost 100% convinced that Pastor Charmley will not, well, be preaching about himself. In fact, if he, he was preaching about himself, I wouldn't be playing it this week. I would be playing it next week, but <laughs> he's a known quantity here at Fighting for the Faith. Let's cue up our music here. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via bethel evangelical free church hanley stoke on trent pastor gervais nicholas edward charmley presiding the name of the sermon rejoice christ is risen the text is taken from the gospel of matthew chapter 28 verses 1 through 10 Pay real close attention to who the sermon's about. Make a note of it, and then make a note of this fact. 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians makes it clear that we don't preach ourselves, but Christ and him crucified for our sins. See if that's who and what Pastor Charmley preaches about. This is what you should be hearing every Sunday, Easter Sunday, doubly so. All right. Let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, his sermon, Rejoice, Christ is Risen. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 28. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This is the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew has spoken of the life, the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. And he has left us at the end of chapter 27 with Jesus lying in the tomb, guarded by Roman troops, with a stone over the entrance. And apparently that is the end, and yet it is not the end, for there is one more chapter to be written. Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel asked and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, but he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to his disciples to bring his disciples word. And as they went to meet his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We trust God to add his blessing to the reading of his most holy and precious word. 
Our text this morning is found in the chapter that we read, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. We gather together this Easter morning with that sure knowledge that the Lord is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And we pass from the solemn scenes of the crucifixion on Good Friday to the joy of the resurrection morning. And we come with the scriptures in spirit to that tomb, not as the disciples did, as the women did that morning, thinking to find only a dead man, but knowing that we shall find that Christ is risen from the dead, that the tomb is empty, and he who died now lives forevermore, exalted on high, that he has risen to reign, and we come knowing that we shall hear once again the words of the Lord saying to us, Rejoice! Do not be afraid. And the words of the angel telling us he is not here, for he is risen. And so as we consider these words this morning, as we consider the resurrection, we think first of all, of the reassurance of the angels, do not be afraid. Secondly, the resurrection of the Lord. And thirdly, his injunction to us, rejoice. The reassurance, the resurrection, and the rejoicing that must follow. So first we have the reassurance, do not be afraid, said the angels. And you will notice to whom the angel said it. For you see... There were those who were terrified that Easter morning. The guards at the tomb. There they were. And they were tough Roman auxiliary soldiers. Recruited from the outposts of the empire. Sent to this outpost of empire that was called Judea. They had seen it all, they thought. They would have been pagans. Believers that there were many gods even as many in our world today hold such a philosophy in this very land. They believed that the body was nothing. The body was something to be discarded of death and the real self was the soul. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, nor could they. And so they were told, they were posted at the tomb, and they would, would have been told something along the lines of, this man was a religious teacher, they knew that, who had many followers, and some of them may fanatically come and try and steal the body. That would have been the orders they were given. And so they would have taken up their positions around the entrance of the tomb, facing outwards, because nothing could happen inside the tomb. It was sealed, so they thought. And indeed, for human, from human perspective, it was. No man could get in that too. But they were not dealing with the power of man, but the power of God, which they did not understand or know. And so, 
the angel came. There they were expecting fanatical men at best. Weapons are ready for that, but instead an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became as dead men, as one of the commentators said. It was as if, if you'd been there, you could not have told which was quaking more, the ground or the soldiers. As the angel descended, they saw something far outside any of their experience. An angel of the Lord. And they were terrified. And the angel said nothing to them, but went about his work to roll away the stone. And none of them could resist him. And they fell to the ground. And they fled, terrified. No man, but an angel came. And the angel said nothing, for the angel intended for them to be terrified. But then the women came, and the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. It is perhaps of note that most of the occasions at least when an angel appears in the Bible, the angel has to say, do not be afraid. Because to meet an angel and to know it is a terrifying experience. We are to give no credence at all to anybody who claims to have met with an angel and for it to have been a comforting experience in every way. Angels are terrifying because they are pure and holy beings who come from the presence of God. And so the women are afraid. What is this, this man? Why is he here? And he said, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And there is the reason they were not to be afraid, because they were there looking for Jesus. Those who come seeking the Lord Jesus are never to be afraid of God or his messengers. God's angels are not there to terrify those who seek Christ. Those of Christ's people who are seeking closer fellowship with him. Those of Christ's people who are seeking to renew their faith. And those who are coming for that first time. Trembling, worrying what is going to happen. The angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. For he comes, the angel comes to bring good news to those who seek Jesus who was crucified. And so we come to our second point, the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was crucified. Dead and buried. We confess that with all the church that he was crucified, he died and he was buried. That he was crucified not simply as an innocent sufferer, as a martyr. Many there were who were executed as martyrs. Jesus did not die simply as a martyr. 
did not die simply to bear witness to the truth. He died because he is the truth. He died because he is our saviour. For he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He took our sins and our sorrows and made them his very own. And everybody knew he was dead. Though they did not realise as yet that he had died not simply as a victim of human evil but had died for our sins. He had died bearing our penalty. He had died in our very place as our substitute. They did not recognise that and yet he had. He was delivered for our offences says the Apostle Paul. That sin that you and I have committed we have fallen short of the glory of God Jesus bore. He carried it. He made it his own. He took the responsibility. And therefore he had to take the penalty. Therefore he had to be nailed to that cross. Otherwise, if Christ is not there in your place, in my place, then he is there condemning the world. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, so Jesus tells us. Because he willingly bore our penalty. And he was there for us, for our salvation. He was there as the sacrifice who brings us peace with God. This is the one who was crucified and now this is the one who is alive again. He is not here. For he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay and the angel would have indicated to them that stone bench in the wall of the tomb. And on it, not the body they had laid there, and on it just the wrappings, the grave clothes, which he needed no more, for he was risen from the dead, no more to die. He is alive forevermore. And so the grave clothes are discarded of no use, no purpose, and the tomb given back to Joseph of Arimathea who lent it. For it is no longer needed by the Lord. He is arisen from the dead, and his resurrection is the Father's great Amen to all the sons done. To all the sons suffering and death, the Father says Amen and raises him from the dead. To that penalty that has been paid, the Father says, it is accepted in full. And raises the Son from the dead. He has done it all. It is truly finished. Every one of those things for which he died is done. And therefore he is raised again, declaring the sacrifice is finished. The temple is pointless now. No altar, no sacrifice to come, for Christ has paid it all. 
altars, no sacrifices. Sacrifices done. The old sacrifices, they were repeated again and again and again. Every year, Yom Kippur came round, the same old round of sacrifices, but now Christ says it is finished. And he is raised from the dead, no more to die, raised glorious, majestic, and victorious. He has conquered death and hell. His blood has paid the penalty. Now he is victorious over death. Death could no more hold him. He was raised immortal, raised glorious, raised again for our justification, as Paul says. The great declaration of God. All those for whom the Saviour died are free from their sins, are righteous by his righteousness. They have died in him, they are raised in him. And so, we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, all who believe on his name are free. All who believe on his name are forgiven, are pardoned. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Come see where your sins have been removed once and for all. Come see the great declaration of God. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. You are ransomed. Christ has arisen from the dead. And he has risen from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In his resurrection we by faith behold our own. In his resurrection we know this, that all those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised incorruptible when he comes again. That there is a resurrection born. For Christ has said, those who believe on him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the will of my Father, he said, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but should raise it up on the last day. And so we look at the tomb. We look at the graves of those who have gone before us, who have died in faith, and we say, they will rise again. That tomb is not the end, any more than Christ's tomb is the end. The tomb of every believer is to be opened, just as Christ's tomb was opened. And of every believer it shall be said on that day of resurrection, he is not here, she is not here, he is risen, she is risen, risen with Christ to join him in the skies. It is sure and certain, for the tomb of Christ is empty. It is sure and certain that all who die in the Lord shall be raised in the Lord. Christ has said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. He who is raised again is raised, not as Lazarus was raised. In the scriptures, to a continuation, a prolongation only, of his earthly life. For he rose and died again. But to a sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus, 
a life in the body, yes, a body transformed, made like unto his glorious body, a body like Christ's that will never die, will never perish nor fade away. Christ is arisen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And therefore, as we hear of the resurrection, we must come then to the rejoicing. Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! He met them with a joyful greeting as they went on their way, with fear and great joy. And you know his fear and great joy. The joy was greater than the fear. And yet, of course, they had their doubts. What is going on here? This is something that has never happened before in the history of mankind. And never happened since. The resurrection of the Messiah. A once for all event. And so they ask, can this really be so? Can it really be? And the answer is yes, it can. Yes, it is. For then he greets them, saying, Rejoice! Now, that greeting was, on one level, simply the normal greeting. You met someone in the morning and you said to them, Rejoice! But of course, Christ fills it with a whole new meaning. Because he is risen from the dead. And here is the great truth of it all. He meets them and says, Rejoice! He can meet them and say good morning. That he can speak to them. And they can share fellowship with him that glorious resurrection morning. Rejoice, he says. The proof that he is risen. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now he was always the Son of God. But he was, as it were, incognito. For he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And there was nothing to distinguish him before the crucifixion in his appearance. Nothing to distinguish him from any other Jewish man of about 30 to 35. Nothing. But after the resurrection, it is quite different. After the resurrection, there is something glorious and wonderful about him, but he is raised again incorruptible. He is the same Jesus, and yet he is the Son of God with power. He is the same Jesus, and yet he is shown to be Lord of all. Victor over the grave. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice. For the great reason to rejoice is that he is arisen from the dead. The reason to rejoice is that tomb is empty. The angel did not open the tomb for Jesus. When he opened the tomb, the tomb was already empty. He opened the tomb for you and me. He opened the tomb that we might see that the tomb is empty. The angel might say he is not here and be able to show that he is not here. Open the tomb because Christ is risen from the dead. And so we rejoice because we know now that everything he said is true. Everything Jesus said that he is the Son of God who came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
But he is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is true. When Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, we know that's true. That all that he said is true. And all that he did points to this great and wonderful fact that he would rise from the dead. And it is shown that he is the saviour of mankind. There is no other saviour, there is no other lamb, no other refuge. That that blood has been shed for us. And he has risen from the dead and declared that blood has been accepted. And that blood cleanses us from all sin. Oh yes, you and I, we have shared in the sin of the soldiers and of the Jewish leaders who crucified the Lord of glory. But he is crucified for you and me to bring us sinners back to God. Crucified for us. That we may be saved by that blood. The blood of Abel cried out for revenge. The blood of Christ cries, Father, forgive. He has died that we might live. And we rejoice that he is risen from the dead and he is Lord. And he says to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For you see, they knew that their faith had not been what it should have been. They remembered now all he had said that he would rise from the dead. And they think, well, why did we not believe him? For they did not believe him. Why did we not trust and wait, not in terror or despair, to come to the tomb to anoint the body, but in faith and hope to come and meet him as he rose again. Why did we not have the faith, they would have asked themselves. And all his disciples abandoned him and fled. Why did we abandon him, they would have said to themselves. And Peter denied him three times. And they would be thinking, what of Peter, what will happen to Peter? What will happen to us who have so singularly failed God? Do not be afraid, he says. Rejoice, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see you. Go and tell my brethren. Not go and tell those faithless people. Not go and tell those men who abandoned me. Go and tell my brethren, for whom I died, and whom I yet love. Do not be afraid, he says, for I did this for you. And I know your hearts, and I know all that you have done. And I die to forgive it all. That you might be cleansed in my blood. That you might be freed from your sins and you might be pardoned. I know everything, he says. I know all your faithlessness, all your failings, all your sins. And I died for them. Go and tell my brethren. 
For he is not ashamed to call them brothers, though they were ashamed of him that night, and all forsook him and fled, he is not ashamed. Though they were afraid, he is not afraid. Though they abandoned him, he says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I am risen from the dead, he says, to give to my people every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and to bring them at last to my eternal abode of glory. I am come, he says, that you may have life, and have it more abundantly. Not as the world thinks of abundance, but as God does, as fellowship with God, that life ceases to be a matter of works, as it is for so many religious people. Do this, do that, do the other thing, and maybe you will earn favour with God. Your life is not merely the common round for man, but is lived to the glory of God, and better still, lived in fellowship with God. A life with God, that is abundant life. That is life as it is supposed to be. Life with God. And then it will not matter. It does not matter in the great scheme of things where you live. Whether you live in wealth or in poverty. All who have Christ have unsearchable riches that the world can never take away. And I am risen, he is risen again to declare that he is Lord of all, for you and for me. For he is reigning now in heaven, not, not as simply God over all, but as the Lord of the church, and the head of the church, as our representative, as A.W. Tozer put it, our man in glory. He is there for you and me. He is risen again. And so he says, do not be afraid, for I have for you a future hope. I have for you a sure and certain hope that you will share my resurrection. You who now are mine shall have all that is mine and shall enjoy all that is mine, not for a time, but for all eternity. Rejoice, he says, do not be afraid, for I am risen from the dead, and I am Lord. Therefore, we are reassured that we are not to fear. Oh, there is very much in the world that excites fear. We look at the situation in the world in so many ways, wars and rumours of wars, revolutions, financial collapse, financial restructuring. We look at the erosion of freedoms in the so-called free world, then we hear the voice of Jesus, do not be afraid, for I am risen from the dead, and I am Lord. We look to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We look back to that first Easter morning, to that empty tomb, and we hear the words, He is risen. Do not be afraid, He is risen. And we see Jesus. 
By faith we see him in the scriptures risen and reigning and ruling over all. And we cannot be afraid. We cannot be afraid of this vain world. This world can do nothing fundamentally, finally to God's people for Christ is risen from the dead. And so we hear his word rejoice. And that word comes to us this Easter morning not as a, a command rejoice or else but as an encouragement rejoice. Think. He says I am risen from the dead. Rejoice that Christ is now risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That this same risen Lord is seated on the throne of the universe. That he is over all, God forever blessed. And that he is coming again in glory for his people. And we look forward to his coming, not with any terror at all, but we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. That he will raise his people to share in his eternal life. When all the things this world values shall pass away, this world is passing away and all that it sets its desires upon. But Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is risen from the dead and he reigns and rules for his people. And he is coming again. And so we look forward. And we see all the trials and troubles of life. And they are not nothing. But they are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us when he comes again. Rejoice, he says, for I am risen from the dead. Rejoice, for I am for you. Rejoice, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can look at these words and we can go home this Easter morning as the women went home rejoicing. Rejoicing that Christ is risen from the dead and he is Lord and he shall reign forever and forever. Amen. Amen. Nice. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email me my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.